Amen. Well, good morning, church. I hope you're excited to be here today. Glad you came out on Memorial Day weekend as we celebrate uh, Christ together today. I'm excited to be here, uh, and I hope you are as well. Again, it's Family Worship Sunday, so it's cool to see the kids uh, out there. Uh, we hope you guys will have a good time and see that we have just as much fun in here as you do uh, in the room over there. It may not be as loud, but we still have a lot of fun uh, over here. If you have your Bible, I want you to open up to 1 Samuel. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, if you've been here since the beginning of the year, you know uh, we have been in a series uh, throughout this year. We took a little break over the past few weeks um, called Knowing God. And so one of the things that I felt like the Lord really put on my heart for this year uh, is this, this theme of knowing God, that each of us would uh, begin to dig into God's Word from Genesis to Revelation to see uh, who God is, not just uh, in the New Testament, but also all the way through the storyline. We get to see uh, the same God of the New Testament as the same God of the Old Testament, uh, and it's been incredible. We've made it all the way to First uh, Samuel. Uh, we've made it through Genesis all the way to, to Joshua was the last one that we did. And this morning we're going to be looking at uh, the life of Saul. And Saul is a very uh, incredible story to learn from, but I will give you a heads up. Uh, it is a sad story. Maybe one of the saddest stories in the entire Bible is the life of King Saul. Now, this is not Saul to Paul in the New Testament. This is Old Testament Saul, completely different uh, picture. So if you've got your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 15 is where we'll begin. Let me pray for us, and uh, we'll jump in. So, Father, again, we love you. God, we pray uh, as we dig into your word this morning, God, that you would uh, convict our hearts. God, would you teach us through your word? Lord, we know uh, that this is your word. God, you wrote a book. And Father, this word is living and active. And God, as we dig into it and we listen to it, and God, we heed it, uh, Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. God, that you would reveal areas of our life where we need to grow. God, you would show us who you are. God, you would show us our sin. And God, you would show us how great of a Savior uh, that you've sent for us in Christ. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So let me catch you up from Joshua. If you haven't been here, the book, Joshua was kind of, you know, at the first of the Bible, we saw uh, the Israelites were led by different people, whether that was Abraham, kind of the father of it all, all the way through. Uh, we saw uh, Abraham, Isaac, we saw uh, Jacob, we saw uh, Moses, and, and then we ended with Joshua kind of leading the Israelites into the promised land. Well, after he got them into the promised land, the Israelites began to be led uh, by what the Bible calls judges, right? And some of these were male, female. Uh, most of these were wicked. Some of these were not wicked. Uh, but during this time, the Israelites really got zealous for a king. They wanted a king. All the other nations had a king. They wanted a king. And Samuel and God uh, took offense to this, right? That they thought uh, that the Israelites understood that God was their king. Christ was their king, right? And so, uh, and, and because of that, they were rejecting him to want a human king. And Samuel warned them, hey, if you get a king, uh, human kings take from you. They don't give. They're not like uh, your king. And so ultimately, uh, God and, and, and Samuel, God told Samuel to give them what they wanted. And we see the rise of a man named Saul. And Saul was a guy uh, whose story started so well. And I'm not going to read the beginning of his story. That's why I'm telling you this. Uh, but he started as a very humble man. Uh, he, he, even when they went to find him to kind of uh, coronate him as the king, and to, to bring him forward for everybody to see, he was hiding in the luggage tent, right, where nobody could find him because he was nervous. He didn't feel like he was worthy of this. But what we see in Saul's story is that a story that started as a humble guy, good-looking guy, nice guy, honoring God, that had so much potential uh, to, to, to do great things for God, uh, because of unrepentant sin in his life, uh, his life would be destroyed, literally destroyed. He destroyed uh, a lot of things around him. Uh, he led uh, the, the nation of Israel in the wrong direction in some ways, and then ultimately his life ended uh, in death and, and not a good death. And so First uh, Samuel 15 picks up where the Lord uh, comes to, to Saul and rejects him as the king. And so I want us to read uh, together. It's kind of long, but I'll stop and, and, and make sure you understand it. So uh, verse 1 says this, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. 
I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt, right? So the Amalekites, uh, back when the the Israelites were coming out of Egypt in Moses' day, uh, attacked uh, the Israelites, and, and, and they weren't good. And so now God is going to ask Saul to lead the Israelites to get justice on the Amalekites. Listen, verse 3, now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put to death everybody, men, women, children, infants, cattle, and sheep, and camels, and donkeys. So very clear instructions from God to destroy this people for what they had done to the Israelites. This is God's mission of justice But listen to what Saul does. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telam, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and sent an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all of Israel uh, when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Underline that. Why is that a big deal? Well, God told him to destroy everybody, but he took, took the king alive. And all his people uh, he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So what do we see here? We saw God give Saul a very clear command of what to do. Destroy everything. Don't take any plunder. Don't take the king. Don't take any of that. Destroy everything. And then very quickly, we see that Saul uh, has taken the king uh, and has taken plunder. And, and, and he said he totally destroyed everything else. But later in the book of Samuel, we actually see the Amalekites come back against the Israelites uh, and, and take them into captivity. And so we see that he didn't do that either. And so we see clear disobedience. Another thing that you may not see on the surface here is why would Saul take uh, plunder? Why, why, why did armies take plunder Uh, in the Old Testament? Why did armies uh, take kings in the Old Testament? Well, uh, they did this for a couple of reasons. One, when you took, when you attacked someone and and, and destroyed them, you took their plunder so that you could get rich. It was about your kingdom. It was about you becoming rich and wealthy. It was, it was your conquest rather than the justice that God wanted him to pay. Why would he take the king? Well, in the Old Testament, when you took a king, it was a way to show dominance. It was a way to show, hey, I'm the big, baddest king on the earth. And so what we see is God gives Saul a mission about God's justice, and we see him reverse it and begin to, to, to make it about himself and his own uh, king and, and his own kingdom. And that is a big no-no when it comes to the kingdom of God. Do not use God for your own gain. Verse 10, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So early in the morning, Samuel got up and he went to meet Saul, but he was told that Saul had gone to Carmel. What was he doing? There he set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. So again, we see Saul's heart. It's about himself. This humble king that had started out so well has now began to use God for his own gain to do what he wanted to do. Verse 13, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. <laughs> like, whoa, all right. You wouldn't think, it, Saul, you would think Saul would say, oh, you caught me, right? I was building an altar. I'm, I'm in sin. No, he, he doesn't respond that way. The Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul's disobedience was obvious to everyone except for himself. He was deceived. He had begun to think that he was doing the work of the Lord when he was actually doing the work of himself, and he had made God's kingdom about himself. Saul answered, verse 15, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice 
to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. So who's he blaming on? Oh, it was the soldiers. They, they did it. I didn't do it. They did it when very clearly it was about Saul and he commanded it to happen. 16, verse 16. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Samuel replied. Saul replied, Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? Samuel's reminding him of what God had done. You were once small, but God made you king. The Lord anointed you king over Israel, verse 18, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites, wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Saul again, verse 20, but I did obey the Lord, again deceived. I went on the mission that the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder and the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, who? Your God at Gilgal. So, so it's not a personal God to Saul. It's the Lord, your God, Samuel. We did this for your God. And so we very clearly see this relationship between God and Saul had begun to shift to now where it was pretty much non-existent. It wasn't his God. It was, some, it was Samuel's God. Verse 22. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Listen, to obey is better than sacrifice. Underline that. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. We'll stop there. Today, today I really want to focus in on this story. I mean, I told you it's a very sad story, one of the saddest stories in the entire Bible. And you can continue reading in the book of Samuel to see this is just a snapshot into Samuel's life and one of the places where he had began to live this life of disobedience. But I believe, even though it is a sad story, that we can learn from it. And I believe there's much to learn from from Saul's story. And so I want to dive into uh, three things specifically. So write these down. This is where I'm going, and and we'll we'll go there together. So the first is the DNA of sin. Uh, what, What is the DNA of sin? How did sin become so prevalent in the life of Saul? The second thing is the power of self-deception. Where where does self-deception come from? How could Saul get to a place in his life where he was sinning and living for himself so profoundly that everybody else could see it around him, but when he looked inward, he couldn't see it himself. He thought he was doing the right thing. And then lastly, the decision of life or death. What decision should Saul have made that could have connected him back to life in Christ. So the first is the DNA of sin. You know, it's easy to look at Saul's life and think, I'm not Saul. Billy, I'm not a king. I don't have any money. I'm not a military general. None of these things. We don't really relate. The sins that Saul struggled with really aren't mine. But here's what I want you to understand. The same sin that Saul struggled with is the same sin that everybody has struggled with since the beginning of time back in Genesis after the fall. It's in you and me. John Owen, a great commentator says, the seed of every sin is in every human heart, right? And so we can't look at people in the Bible and think, oh, that was their sin. I don't struggle with that sin. No, we have to look at it and and examine our own lives to see, man, what in Saul is in me that needs to be dealt with for God. So there's three things that characterize uh, this sin, or I would say make up the DNA of sin. The first we see is arrogance and rebellion. Letter A, arrogance and rebellion. Uh, You see this in Saul's attitude. Saul's attitude was my way, not God's way. God, I know this is what you've told me to do, but my way's better. I see it as I can accomplish what you want me to do and still get rich for myself and still get plunder and still be uh, this this world-renowned king that everybody thinks so much of. He was looking, literally, if you look at the situation for what it was, Saul was looking at it all-knowing, all-right, omniscient, loving, just, good creator God 
and basically telling him, my way is better than your way. Does that sound familiar? How arrogant is that? I mean, the best way I know to do it is it would be as if you and I walked up to Steve Jobs, who was the creator of Apple Computers, and we'd walk up to him when he was alive and, and say, hey, Steve, I know you designed these things and you know how the iPhone works and the Apple computer works, but I've, I've, I've been studying it. And I've read a couple books. I listened to a, a talk that you gave. It's time for you to kind of sit back and, and I'll take it from here, buddy. That, that's what it's like when we rebel against God, when we come to God and say, Lord, I know your way's good, but I, I see it from a different angle, and I think I uh, know a little bit better, so I'm going to do it my way. It is this arrogance that leads us and Saul into rebellion against God. This has been the MO of sin since the Garden of Eden. If you look all the way back in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, the story of Adam and Eve, what, what is their story? They're in a garden. God has placed them there. They're walking with God closely in, a, in abundant life. And there's another tree in the garden that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is that symbolic of? It's symbolic of, hey, you can live in this garden walking with God in abundant life, or you can eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can essentially be God and determine what is good and evil. You can trust God and live in the garden of the tree of life, or you can decide you want to be God, and then you go find your own garden and live in a fallen world. And what does Adam and Eve, what do they do? They choose to try to be God. This is the same sin we see not only in Adam and Eve's life, but Satan's life. Why did, why did God kick Satan out of heaven? Because he wanted to be like God. He wanted to be God, right? It, it, this is the same sin that we see in Saul's life. He wanted to be God. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. For, for our kids in the room today, listen, uh, this is my sin. This is your sin. This is your mom and dad's sin. There's no perfect person in this room. All of us want our way and want to do things our way. But what the Bible teaches us and God teaches us out of love is that God's way is the best way. It is the way that leads to our happiness and our joy, and ultimately, it is the best way. And so inside of every human heart, there's this religious attitude called sin. And listen, this is what it sounds like. My way is better than God's way. And it leads to us rationalizing uh, things. It leads to us justifying uh, things. It, it leads to all kinds of destruction. And it doesn't sound that bad, right? Billy, man, I just want to live for myself. I just want to do things my way. It doesn't sound like it hurts anything. But here's what I'm telling you. It is the deadly sin that has caused all of the destruction that we've seen in the world since the end. This is why Proverbs 14, 12 tells us that there is a way that appears right. But in the end, it leads to death. It leads to destruction. Literally in verse 23, God compares this sin of rebellion, of my way, not God's way, to divination, which is, which is Satan worship. That means that's like you're going in a room with a, you know, and, 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 and putting on your clothes and beginning to sacrifice things and do all kinds of things to literally Satan. Think about that. We look at that and say, oh, I never do that. That's terrible. But when God views rebellion, that's what he sees as that's how repulsive rebellion is to God. It says that God regretted making Saul king. Does that mean that he, he didn't know? No, God doesn't regret. I mean, he, he knows everything. It would be wrong for him to regret. But he does regret uh, for us to do things that are against his will. Like it moves his heart. Samuel cried the entire night after Saul did that. Our rebellion is a big deal to God. Our arrogance is a big deal to God. It must be a big deal to us. We have to look inward to see where am I being arrogant? Where am I saying my way instead of God's way? The second thing we see in Saul's life that makes up the DNA of sin is selfishness and idolatry. Selfishness and idolatry. When, when, when Samuel comes to Saul, uh, it says that Saul had set up a monument in his own honor. And there's nothing that really sums up uh, what was going on in Saul's heart more uh, than this monument he was setting up in his own honor. Notice not Saul's attitude, my way over God's way, but now notice his agenda. It's my kingdom, not thy kingdom. 
right? So it's, it's more about his kingdom. He's building up his kingdom. It's about him. Think about what Saul did. He turned uh, God's mission, God's justice, God sh- revealing his justice and who he was to the Amalekites into a conquest that was about Saul getting rich, about Saul getting the plunder, about Saul's popularity and Saul's fame. He set up an altar in his own name. Why would you set up an altar in your own name? You want to be famous. You want the people, you want to take credit for what God has done. Right, we see he took the plunder. Why do we take plunder? So that we can get rich, so that we can become famous, so that people will look at us and see that, man, this guy's wealthy. God's blessing must be on him. This is the way of Saul. Why did he take Agag? Because Agag was a king that would go into his trophy room to say he was a great king. He was world-renowned. So we just see this desire in Saul of his kingdom, not God's kingdom. Everything was about me, me, me. And that's what sin does is it literally screams, me, me, me. The best way to think about sin in our lives is think about the middle letter of sin. What is it? S-I, right? It's, it's, it's the great I problem. It says I want instead of considering what God wants. It says in my strength instead of relying on God's strength. It aims for my glory and attention and not God's attention and glory. And again, this doesn't seem like a big deal, right? I, I just, Billy, I just want to uh, just, just make a little money. I just want to be a good king. I, I, I want to be world-renowned. I want the approval of others. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But it's a huge deal, and it's very deeper than that uh, in Saul's life. We see that it actually had turned into idolatry. Because Saul was literally setting up an altar in his own honor. Selfish power and approval and recognition had become everything to Saul. It's all he thought about. It's all that he wanted. Everything that God told him to do or someone told him to do, he was able to twist it to become about himself. It had become everything to him. And this is exactly how sin works. You guys have heard me say, sin always takes you further than you want to go. It always keeps you there longer than you want to stay, and it always costs you more than you want to pay. And the reality is, for every person in this room, not just Saul, is that we can either live for God and for his agenda and for his plan, or we can live for ourselves and for our agenda and for our plan. But the the clear thing is we can't do both, right? God will not be mocked. It's either for God or for ourselves. And the crazy thing is when we live for God, God has orchestrated and designed it so that we actually find the abundant life that he created us for. So selfish idolatry, arrogance and rebellion. And then the third thing that we see that makes up the DNA of sin is disobedience and rejection of God's word. Disobedience and rejection of God's word. Listen to verse 26. It says, but Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. So not only Saul's attitude, not only Saul's agenda, but notice Saul's actions. It's it's my will, not thy word. It's I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care what your word tells me to do. God's word was clear. Saul knew it. Samuel knew it. Everybody knew it. However, Saul directly disobeyed. Obeyed, And it's important for us to see that Saul didn't fully, uh, he, he, he literally, Saul only did 98% of what God commanded. I say only, 98% is a lot. He did a lot of what God asked him to do. But the two things he did was he took plunder and he, and he took the king with him. Right, and so, but he, but he said he completely destroyed. Later, we find out he didn't. So he was, uh, but he was obedient to the eye. We would have looked and said, "Oh, that's not that big of a deal, probably." But in God's eyes, to not be a hundred percent obedient is to be disobedient. Right, almost obedience is no obedience in God's eyes. Delayed obedience is no obedience in God's eyes. Partial obedience is disobedience, right? So uh, parents, kids, we can have a little lesson here, right? So when your mom and dad are telling you uh, to obey, right, one of the reasons that God has placed uh, parents in your life is so that you can learn uh, what God's will is for your life, right? And so your parents love Jesus. Obviously, they're here. And when they teach you or ask you to do something and ask you to obey, what they're doing is trying to protect you and love you and raise you up so that you can know uh, God and, and walk in the ways of God. 
And it's important that you obey because, listen to me, if you will not obey your parents, then you won't obey God. And parents, if we won't obey God, then our kids probably don't need to obey us, right? And so we need to understand that obedience is the issue in the Christian life. Listen, write this down. Anything less than absolute, immediate obedience is disobedience in the eyes of God. And this is the posture of disobedience. It rejects the word of God. It it makes excuses. Well, God, I just don't feel like it, or that's not what that says, or it makes exceptions. God, I'll do this, but I'm not going to do that. Or it, it ignores the word of God. It reads it and says, well, that really doesn't apply to me, or I don't really think that's what that says. It looks for loopholes in the word of God so that the person can do what they want to do. I see this all the time. Billy, well, you said this or you preached this from God's word, but it, to me, I don't think it means that. Well, there, when, when the Bible, when God wrote it, he wrote it to mean something, right? And so it's important that we don't bring preconceived notions into what we're reading in God's word and look for loopholes. Disobedience says this, I know what your word says, but I'm going to do what I want to do. Arrogance and pride. I know what your word says, but it's not right for me right now. It doesn't really fit my schedule, Billy. I know what your word says, but it doesn't really align with my plan. What you are to do and what you're not to do. Is it the authority over your life? What happens, and the way we see this is ask this question. What happens when you and the word of God disagree? So when you read a verse like, go make disciples of all nations... Follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. And you know God's word says that, but then you live your life not doing that because you're not ready or or you don't feel like it's time to do that or, hey, I got other obligations. Or or maybe we read something um, in God's word that says, forgive my enemies as God has forgiven me in Christ Jesus or forgive those who've wronged me. But then instead of doing what the Word of God says, we make an excuse of, Billy, you just don't understand. There's no way I can forgive him. Or when the Bible says to confess your sin or bring your sin to light before God and before a community that's around you, instead of doing what the Word of God says, you say, well, that's not comfortable, Billy. I don't want people to think less of me or I don't want people to think this about me. Or you know the Bible says to give generously or to serve radically. But that means you can't live the lifestyle that you want to live. What happens when those two things, your feelings and your emotions, uh, contradict or come to a crossroads with God's word? Who wins the argument? This is what shows us whether our life is established on disobedience and in a posture of disobedience or whether it's in a posture of obedience. You see, that's exactly what sin does. It rejects the word of God. And it walks in disobedience. Sometimes full disobedience, knowing this is what God's word says and I'm going the opposite way. But sometimes it's partial disobedience. It's knowing God's word does something and doing just enough, but not going all in with what God's word has to say. We have to wrestle with this. In what ways, here's a question for you, Uh, disobedience, no matter how it looks, is always a serious offense to God. So we have to ask ourselves very often, and this is the question that I don't think Saul asked, is in what ways am I walking in disobedience right now? Because listen, again, it's easy for us to look and separate ourselves from Saul and say, well, Billy, I'm not like Saul. Like, I'm not winning wars and trying to get rich off of them. I'm not doing this or that or the other. But when you look at Saul's life and the things that he struggled with, arrogance and pride, disobedience, when you look at the things that were in his life, they're all inside of us. So, so what, in what ways are you walking in disobedience right now? Maybe it's not full disobedience. Maybe it's 98 Uh, Or maybe it's just 2% disobedience. But are you willing to ask that question and allow God to reveal whatever it is in your life that's hindering you from being all that God's asked you to be and called you to be? The second thing we see in this story is the power of self-deception. The power of self-deception. Clearly, Saul didn't see the situation the same way that God and Samuel saw the situation. 
right? So he, it was like he had some blinders on or he had some lenses on his glasses that, that Saul and, or that Samuel and God didn't have. Saul's heart was hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13 tells us that that's what sin does is it hardens our hearts. As we begin to walk in disobedience, our hearts become, become hardened to the word of God, to the things of God. Saul, Saul's eyes were blinded. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us when our eyes are off of God, our unbelievers' eyes are, are, are blinded to the light of the gospel. And so Saul's eyes were, were, were blind, and then his heart was hardened. And listen to me, nothing has the power to destroy us and our lives faster than being deceived, than our eyes being blinded and our hearts being hardened. Listen to how Paul David Tripp explains this idea of spiritual blindness. It's so important. The difference between physical and spiritual blindness is that the former is blatantly obvious while the latter often goes unnoticed. Listen to this. A physically blind person is immediately confronted with his condition and the limitations it places on his existence. A spiritually blind person often not only doesn't recognize his blindness, but is convinced that he has excellent vision. A fundamental part of being spiritually blind is that you are blind to your own blindness. Listen, this is huge. We have to be able to set ourselves up uh, to allow others to help us recognize this deception in our lives. So what does this play out? What is, what is the hardness of heart or spiritual blindness? How do we see that in the life of Saul? Let me give you three things. The first is this, letter A. Saul valued religious activity over obedience. That's probably the main point of this passage. To obey is better than sacrifice. Every time Samuel said something to Saul, he he gave some religious jargon about, hey, we did this to sacrifice it to God, or hey, I did obey this, or hey, I did this religiously. So he was trying to make excuses and make up for the obedience, uh, the disobedience in his life. He knew God had asked him to do this, but instead he didn't do it, and then he tried to use Christianese to get himself out of it. But the problem is God sees right through it. To obey is greater than sacrifice. This is a huge statement throughout the Old Testament. We see it over and over. The book of Isaiah, the book of Proverbs, over and over. Uh, A couple things we need to understand. Religious activity doesn't equal obedience. Religious activity does not necessarily mean obedience. It does not necessarily equal those things. We can be doing everything right from a religious standpoint. Coming to church, saying the right things, doing this, serving, giving, all these things but completely rejecting what God has asked each of us to do. Religious activity doesn't cover or justify disobedience, right? For many of us, when when God asks us to do something that we don't want to do, our initial response is, well, I won't do that because that's too hard. I'll do this, right? And and, and maybe that's uh, giving or maybe that's serving or maybe that's I'll read my Bible. And and then what happens is we blatantly walk in disobedience, but we do it with religious clothes on. And that's exactly what Saul was trying to do. God doesn't want our religious activity. Write this down. He wants our hearts. He wants our surrender. That's what God is interested in. He didn't want Saul's religious activity. He wanted primarily his heart, his surrender, his obedience. And in the New Testament, we see this all over the Pharisees, right? And so many times we read the New Testament in Matthew 23, and Jesus is just giving the Pharisees the business and just yelling at them, you wicked Pharisees, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, you wicked Pharisees. And we're cheering him on, cheering him on, cheering him on. But Larry Osborne, a pastor out in California, wrote a book called Accidental Pharisees. And he says, listen, we don't all intend on becoming Pharisees. He says it's kind of like eating at Denny's. You don't, you don't set out to go to Denny's. You just kind of end up there. You know what I mean? It's just kind of an accident uh, to happen. We don't have a Denny's around here, but you understand. It's kind of like uh, Huddle House or, 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 or Roxy's in lines, right? We, we don't set out to go, hey, let's go there. If you do, you're my people. I'd love to talk to you. But most people don't uh, set out to, to do that. They just kind of end up there. Well, there's nothing else. Let's just go there. Well, in the New Testament, we see the Pharisees who uh, Jesus just, ca- just calls them out over and over again because they were 
preaching the word, but they were not living out what they preached. They, the, everything they did, they did for people to see. They, they didn't have the heart of God. They weren't submitted to God. They, they wanted to point out all the problems with Jesus' ministry, but they didn't want to participate in ministry at all. And so many times, this is where people in the church end up. It's because they take their eyes off of Christ. They begin to uh, put their eyes on religion and doing these things. And what happens is you can put your eyes on religion and your heart drift away from God. This is exactly how religion works. Religion covers rebellion with ritual. Rebellion, uh, religion substitutes ceremony for surrender. It tries to pay off God. Religion like wants to obey God, but it wants to obey God on its own terms. Religion focuses on external performance while ignoring the heart. And this is what Jesus got to with the Pharisees. He says, you clean up the outside of your life. You look great on the outside, but on the inside you're dead. You're missing the whole point of what it is. Listen to how Dave Guzik says it. He says, one could, could make a thousand sacrifices unto God, work a thousand hours for God's service, and give millions of dollars to God's work. But all these sacrifices mean very little if there is not a surrendered heart to God shown by simple obedience. Listen, God wants your heart. He wants your surrender. He wants your obedience. He doesn't want your religious activity. When he has your heart, being involved and being a participant in his church and reading your Bible and the disciplines of the faith will come, but he doesn't want all of those things without obedience. And this is exactly what happened to Saul. He took his eyes off Jesus. He was deceived by religion. He began to focus on external religious actions instead of his heart before God. The second thing we see in his life is that Saul was blind to his own sin. He was blind to his own sin. He was blind to his own sin. Over and over, Samuel came to him and said, hey, you've disobeyed God, you've done this. And he says, no, I've obeyed God. His first reaction when Samuel showed up on behalf of God was, hey, I've carried out all that you've asked me to do. He was blind to his own sin. What was obvious to Samuel and to God, Saul had become blind to. Can you picture this scene? You got Samuel, who's the prophet of God, walking up. And you got Saul standing there. And Saul's excited to see him because he feels like he's had a win in the kingdom of God. And, and Samuel walks up and he, says, uh, and, he, and he says, what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear? So obviously, visually, audibly, you could hear uh, the, the rebellion of Saul because he wasn't supposed to take plunder, but he had the sheep and all these things that were just hollering around him. And Samuel says, well, what is this that I hear? You were obedient, but you didn't do all that God asked you to do. It's a very sobering thing. This is exactly what sin does, is it hardens our hearts and blinds our eyes. Saul was convinced that he was obeying God, but he was deceived. Maybe he had lied to himself so much Maybe he had denied his true motives so much. Maybe he had justified his sin so much that he was literally convinced that he was not walking in sin. When you read this passage, literally there's two potential scenarios. And I want you to write these down because I think we need to examine our hearts to see if either of these are true in our own life. This first scenario is that Saul was spiritually blind because he couldn't see his sin. Maybe because his heart had become hard. Uh, maybe because he had lied to himself so much. I don't know what it was, but one scenario was that he couldn't see his sin. The second scenario is that he didn't want to see his sin. Does that make sense? And I think both of those have been in my own life before that God has brought my attention to. Sometimes there's sin in my life that I don't want to see, and sometimes there's sin in my life that I actually don't see, and I need God's word or I need community to come around me to help with that. Scenario one, Saul was blind because he couldn't see his sin. This is the first scenario. I want you to listen uh, to a professional counselor uh, that, that talks about this as he sits in front uh, of people every day, uh, even pastors, and he shares this. Uh, it's kind of long, but I promise it's life-changing. Listen to me. It says this, Though the power of sin has been broken, the presence of sin still remains. So it's vital that we remember the deceitfulness of sin. Listen, we tend to want to believe that we hold an accurate and reliable view of ourselves. 
But on this side of heaven, that is not always true, precisely because sin lives in a costume. While counseling pastors and other Christians, I've often been struck with the reality that the man sitting in front of me lacked accurate knowledge of himself. And you can't grieve what you don't see. And you can't confess what you haven't grieved. And you can't repent of what you haven't confessed. Listen, evil doesn't always look evil. And sin often looks so good. This is part of what makes sin so bad. In order for sin to do its evil work, it must present itself as something that is anything but evil. Life in a fallen world is like attending the ultimate masquerade party. An impatient moment of yelling wears the costume of zeal for the truth. Lust masquerades around as a love for beauty. Gossip lives in the costume of concern and prayer. Craving for power and control wears the mask of biblical leadership. Fear of man gets dressed up as being a peacemaker or having a servant heart. Pride in always being right masquerades as a love for biblical wisdom. You'll never understand sin's slate of hand until you acknowledge that a significant part of the DNA of sin is deception. As sinners, we are all very committed and gifted self-swindlers. No one is more influential in your life than you because you talk to yourself more than anyone else does. What you say to yourself is profoundly important. Listen to this. Your words either aid God's work of conviction and confession or they assist in sin's system of deception. So it's important to humbly admit that we're all too skilled at looking at our own wrong and seeing good. We're all much better at seeing the sin, uh, weakness, and failure of others than we are seeing our own. We're all very good at being intolerant in others, the very things that we willingly tolerate in ourselves. Listen to this. The bottom line is that sin causes us not to hear or see ourselves with accuracy. And we not only tend to be blind... But to compound matters, we also tend to be blind to our blindness. So what does all of this mean? It's important to remember that accurate self-assessment is the product of God's grace. Only in the mirror of God's word, with the sight-giving help of the Holy Spirit, are we able to see ourselves accurately. So, So this is what deceitfulness of sin looks like. And this is a huge issue for all of us because all of us have blind spots. If you walk out of here today and you say, Billy, yeah, that message really didn't apply to me at all, uh, you have a blind spot. I don't care who you are. Preacher, uh, you've been following Jesus for 75 years or you're a new believer. We all have blind spots in our life and we need God's grace to see them. That's one of the things the gospel does is confronts us in our sin not to condemn us, but to convict us and lead us to life. We need the Spirit to help us. We need the mirror of God's Word. We need people around us, community, that love us enough to speak truth and help us. So that's the first scenario. We we just can't see our sin. The second scenario is that Saul didn't want to see his sin. And I confess to you today, this is probably me more than the other. There's a lot of times I, I'm reading the Bible, I, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing, and maybe I've brought a conceived notion to it, preconceived in that, but when I know that something's sin, I just don't like to be wrong, right? There's nothing that makes me mad more than a cop pulling me over, right? Because I, I know why he pulled me over. You were speeding or you were wrong, and he's coming to the door with the lights to tell me I'm wrong, and the lights are on to show everybody else I'm wrong. Right? And so for me, there's just something in me that just roars up. And if you're anything like me, you see the same sin roaring up in you. Right? You don't want to see the sin. You don't want to see it. You want to make excuses like me. Well, I was on cruise control, man. What are you talking about? I was speeding. I was on cruise control at 7 over. Well, 7 over speeding, buddy. You know? Well, not, I, well hold on. You know? Like I start justifying things for it. So scenario two, let's kind of play this one out. This is probably the most common Your sin is blatantly obvious to those around you, but you are blind to it. 
What do you do with that? In your mind, you have a perfectly good reason for why you're acting the way you're acting. Listen, I've seen this so many times in a marriage. You speak to your spouse like they're a dog. Everybody else can see it, but you've done it for so long it's become normal to you, and so you're blind to it. And you don't want anybody to tell you it's wrong because you've gotten used to just talking that way, even though it's against the will of God. Or maybe it's adultery where, where, where you say, Billy, I'm just not happy anymore, man. We, we've just wrestled and struggled for so long. And you don't want to hear that divorce is against the will of God. You don't want to be wrong. You want to do what's going to make you happy. And sometimes what makes you happy in the moment is not the will of God. Maybe it's anger and profanity at work. I see this all the time. Billy, this is just what it takes to get the job done. In your head, it makes sense as a football coach, right? As a boss, if you'll just yell, if you'll just manipulate the situation, or if you'll just threaten somebody with their job, or use a certain language or profanity around them, then you can get the job done, even though it's against the will of God. You don't want to be told that it's wrong to do that. You're just trying to get the job done. You don't want to see your sin. It makes sense in our minds, so we justify it. Then we become oblivious to it. However, it's blatantly obvious to those around us. Just like Samuel walking up to Saul with God's word saying, listen, this is obvious. The number one issue in the church today is the unwillingness to be honest about our sin. I'll tell you this until I'm blue in the face. The thing that hinders God's work in your life is your unwillingness to be honest about the sin in your life. We think because we can hide our sin or because nobody knows about our sin that it changes the fact that it is sin, and it doesn't. We think that if we just come into church every Sunday and act like everything's perfect, knowing good and well we got all kinds of stuff breaking loose in our house, that that sin's just going to go away, and it's not. We think if we can just focus the attention on someone else's sin and gossip about them, then it will just belittle our sin, but it doesn't. This is ridiculous, and it's destructive. And it's the scheme of Satan to destroy your life and destroy the church. And the biggest issue with this is that God sees our sin. He knows our sin. And the truth of the gospel is that he loves us where we are. So to refuse to come to him and to refuse to bring our sin to him and allow him to help us is just foolish. It's foolish. God's not asking you to be perfect. He's not asking you to deal with the sins of other people. He's asking you to deal with your own sin. And this is what Samuel is showing Saul. But he fails to listen and he fails to take heed. So think about it this way. This is how I was thinking about it this week. If, if God and Samuel walked up to you in your life right now, what question would they ask you? If, if, if God knows everything about you, sees everything about you, good, bad, ugly, what you're doing behind closed doors. If God walked up to you right now, what question would he ask you? And then lastly, we see in Saul's life that he was stubborn and unwilling to listen to godly counsel. And this is what breaks my heart so much. And guys, we cannot be Saul in this light. We cannot reject the godly counsel, the godly community that God has placed around us. We cannot allow stubbornness to exist in our lives. It's just pride. We see this in how Saul responds to Samuel. Does he listen to him? No. He lies. He blame shifts. He denies. He blames it on other people. He rationalizes it in his heart. How do we know that Saul didn't repent? Well, if you read the book of uh, 1 Samuel, the rest of it, he continues on on his, on his path of jealousy, of anger, of pride, of, of just doing his own thing and building his own kingdom, right? Even though there's times where he says, I'm sorry, uh, let's worship the Lord. You see it, don't be fooled by it. Lip service doesn't equal action. Repentance is change. That's what repentance means, is it means that we bring our sin to God and he helps us change. You see, pride refuses to admit fault. Pride refuses to acknowledge any wrongdoing. Pride blames others. Pride's foundation is arrogance and the refusal to receive correction. Pride causes people to isolate themselves. Pride causes people not to listen to anyone. Pride keeps people out of community. Pride is the reason some of us are not in a connect group right now. Because we think we can do the Christian life alone. But God didn't design the Christian life to be done alone. 
Your spiritual growth is a group project. You cannot be who God's called you to be apart from other people in your life walking alongside of you. So there's nothing that has the power to destroy you like self-deception. Do not be deceived. Don't believe the lies of religion. Don't be blind to your sin. Get in community. Don't turn a blind eye to your sin. Allow others into your life. John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And then lastly, on a, on a, on a little more cheerful note, the decision of life or death. And I'll end here. You know, one of the things that I love about the Bible is that the Bible is a real book about real stories, about real people. Saul's a real person. Saul could be one of us sitting in this room right now. And what you see in the book of Samuel is you see a contrast between Saul and David. Many of us know David, and we're going to talk about him for the next few weeks, but I couldn't hit David without hitting Saul. The story of David's life is not that he was a perfect man. The story of David's life is that he was a man after God's own heart. And so when you see, when you look at the response of Saul, Saul's response was pride, arrogance, and unrepentance. He blame shifted. He denied his sin. He never responded to it. He continued to just try to go through the religious motions, but it never worked. And because of that, God took the kingdom from him and rejected him as king. And he said, I'm going after a man better than you a man after my own heart. And you see this guy named David raised to the throne. Now the difference between Saul and David was not that Saul had sin in his life and David didn't have sin in his life. As we know, David is, is infamous, murderer, right? Adulterer, he's done all of it. What was the difference between Saul and David? It was how they responded to the sin in their life. And this is the good news of the gospel, is that we can respond to the sin in our life. The good news of the gospel is not that you are without sin, and there's no forgiveness available. The good news of the gospel is that you are with sin, we are with sin, and there's forgiveness offered in the person of Jesus Christ. And so today, the question we have to ask is, how are we responding to the sin in our life? You say, Billy, this is, man, this is, this is just a hard message. It is, but, but it is the message of Christianity. It's that we are sinners and we need God's grace. And that as we repent of our sin and confess our sin and bring our sin to Christ, he fills us with grace and he fills us with forgiveness. Think about the parable that Jesus told, he who has been forgiven much loves much. Listen, if your love for God is faltering, it's probably because you're failing to see the sin that God's asking you to confess. Every time we come and confess our sin before God, he brings us back to the cross. He brings us back to the cross. So right where you are, I just want you to bow your head. Listen, I don't know where the message finds you this morning, but here's what I know. You got a loving father that's right in front of you. He loves you. And he's asking you to respond to sin in your life, not with blame shifting, not with denying, not with blatantly just turning away from it, not with trying to cover it with religious action, but by confessing and by bringing it before him. The Bible is very clear. Repentance leads to life. Repentance is refreshing. So for some of us in the room today, hopefully all of us, right now as we sing this last song, Run to the Father. Will we be refreshed in God's grace that he's forgiven us, that God wants to help us change no matter what it is? Listen, we all got something. Would you bring it to God today and allow him to refresh you? Father, we love you. God, we're thankful for your grace. God, we're thankful for your mercy. God, would you grow us? God, we know repentance is the evidence of growth. So, Father, I pray that each of us in this room would be walking in repentance. God, will we not be ashamed of our sin, but God, will we bring it to you and allow you to work it in our lives to grow us into the people you've called us to be. So Father, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and sing?